I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides falling asleep on a rainy day while reading a book with a pet by your side. And I I say that because that's what I did yesterday, which was delightful. Delightful. I like seeing a little bit of rain and a little bit of overcast. Yes, me too. And we may be a little biased, but we think reading people are the coolest people. So in this week's episode, we chat with Sanjay Saviramuthu. He's a ballet dancer with the Louisville Ballet and a choreographer who grew up in South Florida. Sanjay attended college at Stanford and studied biology, but decided dance was really his passion. His other passion is reading, and he is the leader of the Louisville LGBTQ book group sponsored by the Louisville Pride Foundation. Sanjay tells us how important it was for the Pride Book Club to provide a safe space for its members that had nothing to do with meeting people at bars or on apps. Sanjay says this small group of readers feels like family. But first, what's going on? We, we've had back to school this week. Yep, I subbed the first three days of school and that was something. And all three kids are back in school. Well, for the moment, uh, you know, who knows what COVID rates are going to do, but we survived the first three days, which is part of the reason why I took a nap on a rainy day yesterday with my cat. Pretty wiped out. This was the first year that I haven't had uh, 20-some years, I guess. Is that Could that be right? I don't know if that's right. I think that's right. Where I haven't had a child going to school in K through 12. I had nobody going back to school on back to school day. But this Tuesday, we will be taking our youngest child, our daughter, to move into her dorm at college. So Tuesday's a big day. And I have it on our calendar that Amy (laughs) is unavailable on Tuesday. (laughs) I am for sure unavailable. You know, on our show, we, we have all kinds of different guests. We have authors, but we also have people who are book lovers who aren't authors. But What happens is when we schedule to interview authors, Carrie and I actually read their book or books. And so I feel like in the last couple of weeks, we have had a lot of interviews with authors and I have been scrambling to get all these books read, Carrie. I know. (laughs) (laughs) We have somebody that we're going to be interviewing in September and I've already read that person's book. And and I'm scrambling too, because I'm like, oh man, we always send our guests questions in advance because nobody likes to have an interview sprung on them. So we we try to make our questions thorough and well-researched. Unfortunately for you, I'm usually like, oh, I'm subbing, can't read, or I'm teaching, can't read. So you you get to do the... uh... Well, because I love to read, so it's usually not a problem. It's just that we've had seems like a lot in a row. And I'm like, ah, I'm not going to get all these books done. Yeah. Yeah. It has been a lot for sure. Yeah. And I mean, not that I don't want to read the books of the people we're going to chat with. I do. But, but then I also want to read what I want to read, right? Like the stuff just for fun. And so then I kind of have this internal, I don't know, like a bit of a temper tantrum, like, but I want to read whatever it was that I wanted to read, you know? So sometimes it feels a little bit like a little bit like work? A little, a little bit, bit. A little, a little bit. bit. But to me, that would be like the best work, but a work that I love. So yeah. I'm okay with it. I just am a little bit stressed about it at the moment. Yeah. I, I need like a massage or a foot rub or, a, <laughs> <laughs> or somebody to, to just say, 
It's okay, Amy. Even if you don't get the book done, if you get it mainly done, it'll be. You want okay. me to say that? It's okay, Amy. Yeah, long, that, you know, it's okay. That's because I'm, I'm reading too. So, all right. I think it's time that we talk with Sanjay. I think that's an excellent idea. Well, Sanjay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Sanjay, tell us just a little bit about you. You seem to have, from what I've read, kind of an interesting life. By day, I am a professional ballet dancer with the Louisville Ballet. I have been dancing pretty much my whole life. And I moved to Louisville almost 10 years ago to join the Louisville Ballet. And I've had like a great career here danced in many full-length ballets, many new works. I've choreographed as well. And through all those different avenues, I've really been able to kind of make a name for myself as an artist here in Louisville and also get to perform with a bunch of other arts organizations around town as well. On top of that, I am also an avid book lover. Um, Yay! So I just like, <laughs> I, I enjoy reading and through a lot of connections in the queer community, Mike Slayton, who is the executive director of the Louisville Pride Foundation, approached me about starting a book club that's based around the LGBTQ books and the queer community. And we've slowly like formed this little book club for our little queer community here. You came to Louisville about 10 years ago. Where did you grow up? I mostly grew up in South Florida, and I went to college in Stanford in California, so all warm places okay. and came to Louisville, but I love <laughs> I love Louisville so much. I was a little apprehensive about moving to Kentucky. I wasn't sure how long it would last, but there's so many great arts organizations here, and they're all like working, collaborating with one another. It's like a great place to make art and to really form a name for yourself. You know, you said you were a reader. So have you always been a reader? Tell us a little bit about what your childhood reading habits and whether your interests in terms of what you read have, have changed over your life. Yeah, from a young age, I was definitely a reader. I would say that I was reading from a very young age when my mom said I memorized the book and like all little kids do. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Like a lot of people in my generation, I was definitely a fan of the Harry Potter books to like overly obsessed and to the point of I would even train myself to start reading faster in preparation for when a Harry Potter book would come out. So I would be the first oh, in my wow. vicinity to finish it so I wouldn't be spoiled. And oh, wow. I think Harry Potter really helped me also get into analyzing texts a lot more and finding the hidden themes within books and get excited about you know, what's to come and theorizing and really getting invested in books like that and what kind of communities that can form around books in general. Hmm. And I know currently I am now in this weird relationship with those books, but there's also an avid queer community in the Harry Potter world. And I think we're all learning how to navigate those circumstances. And for those of you who don't know, J.K. Rowling has come out saying a lot of highly transphobic things And as a queer person and a supporter of trans people and rights, it's very disturbing to have somebody who is very intellectually gifted, and especially in writing, to spew out lies like that and to spew out powerful rhetoric because they can be very good at convincing people that they are correct when they are not. It definitely can be complicated, for sure. 
So are there certain books, like with Harry Potter being sort of a fantasy book, do you still tend to like fantasy books? It's funny. You know, when I went to college, it's one of those periods where it's like, you cannot read for pleasure anymore because you have to read everything (laughs) else. And so after that, and when I read for pleasure again, I really started avoiding the fantasy books. I think if I was to read a Harry Potter type of book now, it would be really hard for me to get into. But I think what I gravitate more is to trying to gain new perspectives because I'm not in school anymore. I think I'm using books as a way to learn about the world or learn about other people. And so that can be through nonfiction or fiction. But over time, I've learned that I respond more when I find a diversity of authors trying to get exposed to perspectives that I would not come across on a normal basis because then it either helps me you know, learn about other people, but also allows me to carry their voices um, into spaces where they might not be able to access. So whether that's authors of different races, of different genders, sexualities, abilities, so really just trying to figure out how can I decolonize my bookshelf of white straight men all the time. Right. Right. So you were the coordinator for the Louisville Pride Mm -hmm. Foundation Book Club. You talked a little bit about that. And in fact, I remember contacting you and Mike, and this was before it even really got started. You were trying to get it going. And this was been maybe two years ago. I don't know. And then COVID happened. And so we're excited to be talking to you now. But tell us how it got going, how it formed. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as Mike approached me, I already had a couple of books at the top of my list of like, (laughs) A, I want to read and to talk with people, but B, thought that this would be great books to start off with and would actually get people's attention to join the club. Because, you know, there's all sorts of book clubs. You can start off with a really basic book or you could find something that might be like really engaging. So Louisville Pride Foundation, LPFs, reach in the community to just kind of access all sorts of people or whoever was in their networks. I think what was important in our early discussions was creating these spaces, especially these queer spaces, that are, you know, not surrounded around like drinking culture, because especially when you're like in a new city, how do you meet queer people? You can go to a bar, I suppose. You can get on an app, I suppose. But in those spaces, like what if you're sober? What if you're not looking for a relationship or things like that? You know, you're just looking for Mm -hmm. friendship, which is a very vital and sustaining in queer communities, especially for people who might be moving to a city who aren't supported by their family or like I said earlier, maybe sober. We want to carve out those spaces that are a little atypical, but still can build community in such a way. Our first meeting was so great because I immediately noticed a wide diversity in age, race, gender expression, orientation. Like it was a great community of people. And I would think it was just discussing like, what kind of books do you want to read? The first book I threw out there as the attention grabber was No Ashes in the Fire by Darnell Moore. It's a great book. It's a memoir by African-American. It's something that's accessible to a lot of different types of readers, but also gets what I'm trying to look for in books is like gaining new perspectives. So we got a lot of perspective of growing up black and gay and in a religious community how you tackle all those different identities together. And I think in a way of talking about identity a lot, it helped bring other people into the group and into the discussions there. I think what was great was just like the diversity of the group in general and a lot of people who I would never meet, 
you know, in a bar mm-hmm. or while performing or on an app or whatever. You mentioned you said you had a, a couple books. As soon as Mike said something to you, was No Ashes in the Fire one of those books? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think they all ended up being some of the books that we first read. So there's No oh, Ashes okay. in the Fire, We Are Okay by Nina LaCour, and I Wish You All the Best by Mason Deaver. All three books were important to me because we got the gender diversity in there, we got racial diversity in there, and also the difference in age range types of books, like the latter two are more fiction, but especially the last one's a little bit more young adult, so trying to find different ways of grabbing people's attention. So how many people attend your group? The ones that attend the physical meetings, we have now settled into like a good group of six or seven. Mm -hmm. And like that crowd has changed throughout our two years. I think after like the first four or five meetings, we started settling into a good solid group that consistently comes every single time and really uses that space accordingly. But on our Facebook group, we seem to have like over 200 people who joined. And I like I try to post like discussion things. They don't necessarily comment on them. But I think people also joined, you know, just get a book list. You know, maybe mm-hmm. you may not read the books in time, but you just want to know more about reading, want to know more about like what queer LGBTQ books are out there and just maybe expand your own reading horizons a little bit. Yeah. So I have to work on getting those people engaged a little bit more if you have any tips on that. <laughs> well, you know what? In my personal opinion, it's better to have six or seven really engaged people than it is to have 20 people that are only moderately interested. Yeah, that's very it- true. They're like family to me, which mm-hmm. is what the whole point of the club was, was to build a different kind of family. So I love the people that do show up. We get occasionally like new person here or there, which is also great. It adds a little spark of energy to our set way sometimes. (laughs) Well, and two, I mean, you know, Amy and I have been in a book club for many years and we cap our membership at at 20. But the truth is, if there's a month and it doesn't happen often where most everybody comes, What happens is, you know, we'll talk about the book, but then the side conversations start, which can sometimes derail the book discussion. And so I think with the book club, some people come to book clubs because they like books and they want to discuss books and that part. And there is like a social element to it. But then some people, I think, come to book clubs strictly for the social element and the book is the excuse. People sometimes have different motivations, I guess, and where the book discussion is in that equation has different weights I completely agree and like moderating that is sometimes really difficult because especially with queer books like they unlock a lot of weird memories for queer people and this might be the opportunity for them to like work through not necessarily like trauma but memories of their own either identity or coming out or coming to terms with like the way they view the world And you want to give them a little bit of space to figure that out. And they might be talking out loud and might be going on a little bit of a tangent. But at the end of that conversation can be something that really brings the group together. And so it's trying to figure out when is that moment happening? And when are we like, no, we're actually going off topic a little bit, rein it back in. But it's been really interesting to navigate that. That's a great point. How does your book club work? Do you meet monthly? And how do you pick the books? Like, do you select all of them? Or do you all vote on them? Or what are the nuts and bolts of your group? Yeah, so we do meet once a month. 
We've shifted now to Tuesdays. It's a Tuesday randomly, usually whenever like (laughs) the group, can you meet on this Tuesday? But very, very beginning, I would throw up, here's the book. Are you guys okay with this? Sure. Okay, great. Move on. Then, you know, I wanted a little bit more opinion. So I would pick a general like topic. So whether it was based on author demographics, like Black authors or Latinx authors or genres like fantasy or memoir or whatever, I would create a poll and then pick some books in that category for people to vote on. And we have a Facebook group. And so I would put a poll in there and people would vote on what book they wanted. The problem we eventually started running into that was, as I mentioned, there's 200 people in that group (laughs) and there's like eight people who show up like one of our members he would start campaigning on the side be like everyone just join this group because none of my books are getting picked which is like sad (laughs) because it's like you're in the group you should be like getting more of a say and we're discussing it so you should be getting quite a significant say so now we've slowly turned that into still doing the category i pick about like three or four books in that category but we decide at the end of the meeting. So it's more of like, you have to come to the meeting if you want to say in what either like book category or what the actual book is. You know what, like we've read quite a list of books and of many genres and many different author demographics. So sometimes I'm at a loss of figuring out like, what are you guys interested in now? (laughs) What do you need now (laughs) in your lives? It's so funny to me how when you start any type of group you go into it and then you sort of realize as you do it how you need to incentivize things differently I just think it's so fascinating the whole like just human dynamics and how things are going to end up working problems crop up that you never would have expected and you're like okay now how do I manage this but I love the guy who was like I'm not getting my book so I need to like crowdsource support (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) But let's talk a little bit about the types of books that you read. So you're reading LGBTQ authors. Are mm-hmm. there any other kinds of limitations on the types of books that you're reading? Beyond that, I don't think so. I just really try to keep in mind of I do in like my normal reading habits. Like what have we not come across? Are we being ableist in any way? You know, things like that. Like, are we excluding a certain author? Are we excluding a certain perspective? Are we excluding a certain genre? I think Mm -hmm. at one point I introduced the idea of graphic novels, and that's been something that's been really interesting to people. And we keep circling back to graphic novels because it's a book genre that people normally wouldn't have gone for. So it's, again, like trying to assess and look at what we've had and what perspectives have not been really addressed because I think that provides an opportunity for great discussion. You know, early on in the book club, we read I Wish You All the Best by Mason Deaver, who is a non-binary author. And the book was also a young adult novel surrounded about this character navigating their non-binary identity. And it prompted a great discussion about simply as like pronouns. You know, I throw out at the beginning of the meeting, especially when there's new people, like, introduce yourself, introduce your pronouns. And like, especially the older generation, the idea of pronouns is very like, what am I doing? How do I like say this correctly? It's like, I don't want to offend, but this is all new to me. And it's like a little bit of education on that side, because you know, this club might be their only way into understanding that it's the way of Gen X to meet Gen Z a little bit, you know? 
because you wouldn't normally interact with either of those perspectives or those people unless you were in a space like this. I've noticed like it's been a great learning experience for people who have either come out late or who have just been separated from a generation of people. And it's also great vice versa of like getting the idea of like what was it like coming out either in a different time period or being closeted in a different time period. So it's a great exchange of like knowledge back and forth that way. I love that your demographic is so wide. I mean, there are obviously book clubs that have very wide age demographics and things, but I think it's much more common to have similar ages, right? And and yeah, I, I think that that's a really interesting thing about your group. And I love what you're saying about older generations sharing things with the younger generations and vice versa. That's added value there, I think. I, I have a question. So the books you select, are they always written by LGBTQ authors or do you ever read books about LGBTQ issues, but they're written by non-LGBTQ authors? Yeah, for the most part, they are LGBTQ authors. I usually try to keep it that way. The one time I slipped up was when Left Hand of Darkness got picked and by Ursula Le Guin and she's not queer. But the book was dealing with a race of people without gender or genders changing. Like it was a different way of gender expression Mm -hmm. in general. And it was this guy coming into this community and trying to understand that. It's a sci-fi fantasy Mm -hmm. novel. So for those of you who are familiar with Ursula Gwynn's books, obviously very sci-fi, but also is progressive on writing about topics, especially in that time period, like the 80s of queer topics or queer expression. I guess it can be complicated. Our book club read a book called This Is How It Always Is about a straight parents who whose child was, you know, they, they weren't cisgendered, right? And so right. it was from the perspective of the parents trying to support their child. And it ended up for us being a good discussion. But I could see that that would be hard depending on what your book club members' experiences have been reading something like that could be maybe traumatic because sort of the mindset of the author, I guess, is completely different. Yeah. And doesn't know it in a way that an LGBTQ author would. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know, if, but I think it's called like own voices. Yeah. Really mm-hmm. like focusing on authors who are of whatever community it is, like writing about mm-hmm. whatever community they're in. And You know, I think something that got established early on, which was eye-opening for me, was the idea of, can we not read a sad book every, like, month? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is funny, because it's, like, it's something that I like the emotional heavy, make me feel something at the end. But a lot of queer books can be like that, because it's a lot of unpacking trauma and da-da-da, and, like, finding yourself within a community. And so... Making sure that that wasn't there also opened up all these other ways of telling queer stories that can be positive and doesn't have to be such a negative experience. We do get the heartbreaker every once in a while, but trying not to put it back to back, I think, is also something that's really important. You don't want this group to always be like therapy the entire time, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it totally makes sense. Different groups of people have experienced different types of challenges and hardships and struggles. 
but that's not the entirety of any group of people's existence, right? They, it's not all been funerals. I mean, there have to be births too, you know. Absolutely. Um, it, so I'm wondering, had you been in a, a book club previously? And if you had, what had been your experience prior to this one? I have not been a, in a book club before, which I was very upfront with Mike. I was like, I haven't been in one before. I'm happy to run it, but I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so that could also be at fault sometimes, but my friends try to assure me I'm doing a good job. <laughs> uh, well, I don't I think, think it's something you need training in, so I think you're right. good. <laughs> It's definitely the moderating part and getting people like started and saying, so what'd you think of the book? (laughs) I don't like necessarily like come in with the prepared questions. I learned that very early on. I was like, don't do that. You just try to just get the conversation going and then try to get people just bring up thoughts that are on their mind. And if you can figure out a way to jog their memories, as long as you can get people started and getting off and then maybe asking a question based off of that. I think that forms a better discussion than coming in with here, the discussion questions we're coming with. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that we've tried to shift a little bit is there's always the people who tend to be quieter and, you know, and they, they listen more than they speak. And then there's the people who just like bogard the conversation. And so in our book club, we've over time, I think we've tried to implement some strategies so that we can get, the viewpoint of those quieter people. Have you had to do anything like that? It's easier now that there's a dynamic in a group setting. You can tell like how people at least relate to one another, but there are times, okay, all the men are talking, all the white men are talking. I got to steer this (laughs) a little bit and get the women talking a little bit. Like those moments, they're not purposefully doing it, but you know, it's happening. So I think I feel knowing- like that should be a t-shirt, like all the white men are talking because I would buy that shirt myself. <laughs> Just start lifting it up and flashing people <laughs> in the middle of conversation. All the white men are talking. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That would be a perfect t-shirt. I would buy it. <laughs> are there members in your group that weren't big readers prior to joining the book club? I think so. Like there's one guy who will do his audiobook version of the book unless we happen to pick a book that doesn't come in that format, which he kind of curses a little, which also introduces a new dynamic of like, what was the audiobook like? Like, how does that sound? Mm. And can you talk about that a little bit? But I think it sets the goal, at least, you know, I'm going to read one book a month, at least, no matter like format I do it in, like, I think that helps at least start a pattern. And then you have people who have read a lot before, but maybe don't have much time now. So it just gives them the excuse to at least get in that habit again. I think we've had like a range of people. Well, I guess I was wondering too, because your group is also in some ways you're like family. I wondered if there were some people who maybe weren't big readers before, but just wanted to join a group of like-minded people, you know, that they felt like they fit in. 
to. Oh yeah, I th- it's like, oh, I should read a book and then let me also join this group of people. I think that's more where it starts first and then that family aspect starts creeping in afterwards. It's like, oh, this is a great group of people. Oh, it really sucks when I do miss book club because then I have to wait another month to see these people. So I think it actually started off with the love of books for most of these people. And then they're like, well, I like this discussion. Like, this is a good group of people. Even got like messages like when people see each other out. Oh, we just started talking about book club how much we love it and what it's done for us in our lives. And it's like, oh, that means so much. You know, you hope something like that will come out of it, but it's different to actually hear that actually is making a difference in people's lives or it's something that people are looking forward to. Like we've had one of our Mm -hmm. members move out of state. And since we have kept a virtual aspect still in there, she's still able to join. So it's not like she's left, especially when we started going back to in person. I was like, we need to keep this hybrid option in here so she can still be a part of our group because that would be weird if she wasn't. So talk about that a little bit because you all continue doing your book club even during the worst times of COVID. So how are you doing the hybrid now that you're meeting back in person? Talk about that a little bit. Right. So obviously, like most people, when the pandemic first happened, it was navigating the online aspect and trying to figure out how you talk with each other online, which again helps that it ended up being a smaller group of people. I think we had a few occasionals come in and out just to try and see what this was about because they had a little bit more time on their hands. And ironically, there was growing pains with that too. There are months where it's just one other person showed up and then we talked for a little bit and we have to do some weird scheduling stuff because it's even though you had more time on your hands, you didn't have time on your hands in the pandemic. For everyone, that's a weird situation. But eventually you got back into the groove of things. And now... Again, going through growing pains again, we started meeting back in person. But, you know, some people either, again, don't live here or don't feel quite as comfortable coming back to in-person, which is totally fine. And I'm hoping that the hybrid option, so some people are online, some people are at a table talking, and we, we've only done this, like, once, the hybrid option. So, okay. Like, Still figuring it out, still trying to figure out ways to make it better. But for the most part, I think it was okay for everybody, hopefully. It'll be interesting to navigate over the next few months or meetings, trying to figure out how to make this work. Well, I want to ask about the books in terms of background, because your heritage is South Asian. And so I'm wondering, has it been a challenge for you to try to find books where even though they're LGBTQ authors or LGBTQ characters, that they tend to be more Western Europe or Western world. Has that been a struggle for you? Has that been something that you've tried to find? Yeah, so I think that's one of the things I have to navigate when trying to figure out a category. And that's something I am conscious of and need to probably do a little bit more of like getting away from the Western books. And that's probably going to come into play whenever I bring up a new category for people. You know, for me personally, in my own reading, you know, I think it's only recently that I found a book or two where I'm like, oh, I'm seeing a lot of myself in here. My family's Sri Lankan. Uh, my parents came to the United States like when my mom was pregnant. So I was born here. So it was only until recently where I found a book where that sort of gets a little bit of Sri Lankan culture in there, as well as like a gay identity. It's called Funny Boy. And it's also recently just turned into a movie. I think it's on Netflix. It's a Canadian-based company Hmm. who 
produced it. And I think my mom might have gone to school with this person or they knew of him. And so slightly like autobiographical fiction, but discussed what it was like growing up gay or trying to be closeted in Sri Lanka in the 1980s. On top of that, you know, race relations in Sri Lanka, which is a big factor of why my parents moved. For those who don't know, there is basically animosity and racial unrest against Tamil people. And my dad Mm -hmm. is Tamil. There have been circumstances where there were these race riots. My dad's family had to hide out in like a back corner of their house as protesters and rioters like would come with burning torches and trying to grab Tamil people and kill them or burn them or harass them or burn down their businesses and things like that, which is a scary time. And Mm -hmm. that was actually depicted towards the end of the book. And it's like finding my parents' stories that they've told me, trying to imagine it would have been in a different generation, but still, what would it have been like growing up there trying to navigate my gay identity, but also, you know, being half Tamil and trying to figure all that out, things like don't think about anymore Mm -hmm. especially as like a child of immigrants like I've just grown up here I I don't often think about what would my life been like if I grew up in Sri Lanka and and my parents didn't move here or if they moved back how my Mm -hmm. life would have been different would I still be in the closet would I even know about my gay identity you know like all these things come into play in your book club is there a specific book you know that you can think of that gave your group some of the best discussion uh, I don't know if you've read A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. No, because I've heard it's, it'll tear your heart out. Oh, and I just don't know God, if I can do it'll it. It'll tear your insides out. So I think that just was a great discussion because I think one of our book club members had suggested it a while ago and finally we picked it. And then people just kept turning to her. It's like, why did you subject us to this a little? But I'm glad you subjected us to this. But it's a long book. But I think in those like heart-wrenching moments there's a lot to discuss and unpack what does trauma do to somebody in those situations one of the main characters is queer and it focuses on four people and their relationship really to one character and some come out some explore their Mm -hmm. sexuality even though this author isn't queer they really wrote about queer relationships in a really authentic way Many people felt that it was a very powerful depiction of a queer relationship. Again, won't give too much away, but I think the way a lot of it was depicted was there wasn't necessarily this like coming out thing. It starts from a friendship and forms into something more genuine and tender. And that was what drew a lot of people into the relationship when reading the book. So I highly recommend it, even though it's really long. And that was one of the hard things of do we split this into two months or two meetings? But somehow everyone finished this book. And then the next book, which was much shorter, no one finished. (laughs) (laughs) That was a time where I had to start motivating people, looking up average reading speed, or if you read like this many pages a day, you will finish well in time. Or (laughs) one chapter a day starting now, you will finish in time. Like... (laughs) Which is some kind of, sometimes techniques I use for myself, set a marker. Well, what advice would you give to someone who's forming a book club? Any words of wisdom for them? Oh, gosh. Like you said before, making sure that everyone is having a voice for sure within their group. Really just listening to one another is a big thing. And I think the hardest thing is trying to create that comfort in a group so everyone feels willing to share 
especially with things like what we go through, queer topics, like it can provide the opportunity for people to really op- open up about their own experiences. And like discussions will be so much better if you're able to do that. So it's going to be slow, but I would say take time to get to know one another. Don't be afraid to spend some time on that icebreaker at the beginning, especially if you don't know each other. So that way you can get a sense of where everybody's coming from. If people are interested in joining your group, are you still taking new members and how would they find out about it? Sure. There's a few ways. Easiest ways, if you're on Facebook, to search up Louisville LGBTQ Plus Book Club and you can request to join our group. There's just a couple of very basic questions that you have to answer, but as long as you do that, you're good to go. It's just a good way to sort out people and make sure I'm not getting any bots in here. Because again, the only reason I keep it private is because if somebody wanted to like say something that was more personal, I don't want that to be public out there, but anyone can really join. You can also look us up on Louisville Pride Foundation's website, Well, Sanjay, it has been so great learning about your book club. We are going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Sanjay and with Carrie. Carrie, what you... What you? What you? What? What book are you reading right now? It's probably an audiobook because I think that you are reading all audiobooks this summer. At least that's the way it seems. No, I am reading short audiobooks this summer. <laughs> you know, I noticed that I'm I'm really on this science kick this summer. For some reason, I just haven't really been wanting to listen to fiction. I don't know why, but the book I just finished yesterday was The Hummingbird's Gift, Wonder, Beauty, and Renewal on Wings by Cy Montgomery. Now, two things attracted me to this audiobook. Number one, it was two hours. So that was a big plus. And number two, it was written by Cy Montgomery. And she is the author who wrote The Soul of an Octopus, which I had read a while ago, and it was wonderful. So I decided that since I like that one so much, and I really love hummingbirds, I put a hummingbird feeder out, and I just think they're an amazing animal. So the book had a number of things going for it. This book was actually a chapter in a larger book called Ornithology, and so she published it on its own as well. And it is the story about how she and a woman who is a hummingbird rehabilitator, two baby hummingbirds were found. They don't know what happened to the mother. And Cy Montgomery and this other woman rehabbed those babies. You know, so it's creative nonfiction. You learn about what that experience was like for them. But it is chock full of information about hummingbirds. So one of the coolest things that I learned from listening to this book, you know, so hummingbirds have different colorations, right? So there's the red-throated hummingbirds. I have one of those that comes to my feeder. I have another one that its back feathers look like iridescent green. Well, what you learn from listening to this book is that hummingbirds coloration is not from pigment. It is actually because their feathers are made up of microscopic air bubbles. And those air bubbles, depending on what the shape of them are, it's the reflection and the refraction of light. Hmm. And that is what determines whether 
a hummingbird looks green or looks red or looks whatever color it looks. So I just thought that was completely amazing and, and totally not what I expected. And then hummingbirds, just the fact that they are so delicate. I mean, in general, when they're adults, they're delicate. But when they're babies, they're like the size of bumblebees. I was going to say, how'd they even find these baby hummingbirds? They'd be so incredibly small. Yeah. What happened was these people, there had been a hummingbird. They had some kind of vine near their front door. And so they had been watching a hummingbird and then they didn't see it and they didn't see it and they didn't see it. And when I say they didn't see it, it wasn't like days, you know, it was like hours. They went and poked through the vines and discovered that there was a nest and there were two baby hummingbirds in it. And baby hummingbirds have to be fed every 20 minutes during the day. If you are a person who likes science, likes biology, loves hummingbirds, uh, you know, or any kind of bird, it sounds like any kind of bird, you know, (laughs) it was just super, super fascinating. I I loved it. Yeah, No, I love that because I majored in biology in school and I was very interested in conservation sciences. So I do occasionally like still dive into that world. So I, I actually knew about the other Simon Montgomery book you were talking about. I know that's on my list somewhere to read so I'll check both out at some point. Sanjay what have you been reading? Well I would definitely like to speak to a book that is in my top five. Yeah absolutely. Of all time. Going back to the Sri Lankan theme also written by somebody who my mom went to school with is called Wave by Sonali Deraniagala. It's about the 2004 tsunami that hit Sri Lanka like it was the day after Christmas And she was staying on the West Coast visiting with her husband and her two children. And basically when the tsunami happened, she lost her entire family, including her parents, her husband, her two sons. And this is one of those heart-wrenching books. This talks about initially going through that experience, depicting that, but also the emotional trauma and grief and how do you come back from something like that? Where does that send you in your mind? I think one of the most powerful things she talked about was trying to navigate your relationship with memory. Because if you remember these people, like you obviously don't want to forget them. You want to keep them alive. But also that idea of like constantly thinking about these people is just as traumatic because you know that they're not here. You can't even imagine how that's like when it's compounded to every basically important person just gone Mm. like in that same instant. And, you know, the survivor's guilt that comes with that too And they originally were living in the UK. So going back home after vacation and seeing what your life is like and trying to return to a life that can never be again and all those emotional traumas you've been going through. In addition to a ballet dancer, I am a choreographer as well. And lately I've been inspired by books I've read. And this was one book which inspired me to create a piece of new work. I was an artist in resident at the University of Kentucky in their dance department. And I created a new original work that was based on this story of this one person trying to navigate the idea of grief and the idea of trauma. And could use dancers both as a metaphorical wave, but also as like those inner demons that you come up with and trying to figure out ways to visually depict that emotional journey of what you go through. Is that something that you have a video of or is on your website? 
it was done in the students. Actually, the, the last live performance I saw before the pandemic. But there's like a little reel of it on my Instagram at the Sanj, T-H-E-S-A-N-J. You can scroll through that a little bit. You should find the piece called Against the Waves. But there's little clips of that in there. And that I, sounds amazing. But also, I can't imagine that book sounds just so heavy. So heavy. But again, I absolutely love stuff like that. Again, she has obviously gone through a lot to be able to put that down into writing. And, you know, there's another side to that. She did end up getting remarried actually to a woman. So in a way, she's also a queer Sri Lankan, which is another like weird little anecdote at the end of that. And to bring it back wow. to our earlier conversation on Harry Potter, she married Fiona Shaw, who plays Petunia Dursley in the movie. So you, you are an artist. You're a dancer and a choreographer. And literature is also an art. And so um, I was wondering if they had ever informed each other. But now we know the answer to that question, which is yes, because you oh, have yeah. done some choreography based on, you know, a book that you've read. Yeah, actually, that's why I kind of start reading a lot more of different perspectives or even things that I can relate to is usually could just be one line. It can even be in a nonfiction book. I think for one of my pieces I've choreographed, it was a line about chosen family in queer communities. We get the opportunity to create our own family. And that is more defining about queer people as opposed to who we love and who we engage with in relationships. It's more about this weird community of family that we form with one another. And I've created a whole piece just surrounded around queer families and chosen family based off of that one line. So there are many ways that books can inform the art now that I create, which is great. (laughs) Yeah, that is so cool. Well, Amy, it's going to be hard to top. It is going to be hard to top. And and the choreography. I know. (laughs) You need to tell us what, what you've been reading. So I am halfway through a book called They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera. And this young adult novel has a very interesting book life. I'm reading it because it's the August selection for the book club that you and I are in, Carrie. And so when our friend Deborah picked it, I looked at the library website and there was a huge waiting list for it, which I thought was a little unusual because it was published in 2017. So it's not a new release. And it was published by an indie publisher, not one of the large publishing houses. And when you and I were at Blue Marble Books outside Cincinnati a few weeks ago, I asked the general manager, Caroline Stein, who we interviewed and was on a few episodes ago, if they had a copy that she could sell me. And her response was, I'd love to sell you a copy, but they are backordered and we can't get them from the publisher. And then she explained to us why that was. So apparently the book was having a huge increase in sales and the publishers couldn't figure out why. It wasn't selected by one of the celebrity book clubs like Reese's or Jenna's or Oprah's or, you know, there's like a ton of celebrity book clubs now. But what they finally realized was that it was due to TikTok and more specifically book talk. And apparently teens on book talk were promoting their favorite books And this book, They Both Die at the End, was at the top of that list. So I don't claim to understand TikTok. I've never been on there. I've never (laughs) been on the site. But I do think that it's cool that something like that could raise the sales of a book, especially a backlist book. 
And it's even more ironic once I tell you what this book is about. So to me, this book is what happens when technology, social media, and death sort of collide. It's set in a contemporary world, just like ours, except that there is a service called DeathCast, where someone will call you and give you notice when you have 24 hours left to live. So basically, it's like a telemarketer calling you to say, you're going to die today. And the people who will die are then called Deckers. And our two main characters, Mateo, who's 17, and Rufus, who is 18, and both have gotten that call. And Mateo's a very introverted boy who's really afraid to leave his house. And Rufus wants to live his last day to the fullest. And they meet each other on a social media site called Last Friends, which is a site that's set up for Deckers to find someone to, to spend their last hours with. And there are all kinds of social media sites set up for Deckers. There's a version of Tinder for people who maybe want to have a one-night stand on their last day that's called Necro. Uh, there's a site where you can stream your last days for others to follow you. There are ads and special discounts targeted to Deckers and pop-up events like a Make a Memory Station. There's a line in the book where he says, Deckers get some perks like free unlimited passes for the subway. You just got to bother the teller with some form. But the unlimited part is, I'll just say bullcrap, even though that's not the word he uses, because they expire at the end of your end day, which, you know, is funny that you would have to wait in line to fill out this form to get these free passes. And you're spending your last hours like filling out these forms. There is a make a memory station where you can go and do these virtual reality things like jump out of an airplane and things like that that give you the sensation of things that maybe were on your bucket list. So I'm about 50% of the way through this book, and it's making me think about several different things. First of all, all the social media. It's taking death, which is usually a more solitary and private thing, and making it almost like an entertainment or a retail experience, which is odd. Uh, I don't know, something I have to think a little bit more about. But it also makes me think about what would you do with your last 24 hours if you knew you were going to die? And yes, this is a young adult book and both of these characters are in what should be an exciting part of their lives or on the cusp of being adults. So in some ways it makes their imminent deaths much more shocking and sad perhaps, but how would the story be different for someone in their thirties or in their sixties? So it was very thought provoking and Mateo and Rufus really approach it differently, but they ultimately push each other, I think, out of their comfort zone. But it also made me think about friendship because both Mateo and Rufus separately have lifelong friends that they're close to, but the, they decide they don't want to make those friends witness their deaths. So then Mateo and Rufus's friendship has to go from a start to finish in 24 hours. The cycle is shortened and yet it makes them close. So it's like the trauma of their experience builds up the fabric of that relationship faster. The author of this book, Adam Silvera, is an LGBTQ writer, but where I am in the book, we know that Rufus is bisexual, but nothing really has happened with that yet, but I suspect that it might become more of an issue farther on in the book. I'm not it sure. Does. It, does. it does. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, don't give me spoilers, Karen. Oh, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> but I'm Do really you, loving this book. I will say I have kept trying to come back to this book, or at least looking at it, but I have been tainted by Adam Silvera oh. because I read the book he did with Becky Albertalli, What If It's Us, and thought it was awful. Maybe, well, maybe they're fine on their own because I've read Love, the Love, Simon book that Be Becky Albertalli did and thought that was fine. So maybe they're just better off separate. So I'll try and get it on my list. It sounds like The Immortalists 
by Chloe Benjamin yeah. mixed oh, with yes. um, uh-huh. like Dante and Aristotle by like Benjamin yes. Oliver yes. Science. Yes. Like it seems like I love both of those books. Those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, as I'm reading it, I wouldn't say there's a lot of beautiful prose in it, but the writing itself doesn't bother me. I just think that the story, it's like nothing I've ever read. I just find it really compelling and thought provoking. And I'm glad so Book Talk just, made me yeah. do it, I guess. I should have said, I felt there was no depth to the characters in What If It's Us. That's oh, okay. Um, well, writing. I'm only 50% of the way through. Right. So, you so can't, it's, yeah. I can't really speak to that yet, I guess, because they're not fully formed completely. So yeah. I have finished it. I gave it four stars. Sometimes it's hard because when it's written about, not that teenagers aren't deep. I'm not saying that at all. But there's a different kind of depth to a teenager than there is to a almost 50 something person you know just because life experience that just factors in and so I feel like they're authentic and you do get some layers to why they are the way they are plus this book it's not just the grief of their friends you know because their friends who are going to keep living know that Rufus and Mateo are going to die but Mateo and Rufus have also experienced loss in their own families Mm -hmm. and so I think it really delves into that as well and so they are still processing the loss of their of people in their family and now they're having to process their grief because they're going to die so you know I felt like the author did a pretty good job of that there's a lot of layers a lot of issues and things to think about yeah Yeah. I thought anyway all right well a lot of great books discussed We are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Sanjay is going to do his three about me. We are back with Sanjay and he's going to answer his questions. So number one, you have been a ballet dancer since you were a small child, but we're curious. So what has been your favorite non-professional experience dancing? So I have mainly been trained in classical ballet and within that, especially as you get older in years and in more of a professional setting, expanded into like contemporary ballet. And that's where my focus is also a little bit in choreography too, is expanding what the classical ballet world is like. I haven't ventured off into too many other styles, but I think especially when educating the next generation of dancers is important to get that perspective from many different types of dancing, especially different non-Western dance forms as well. One thing that comes to mind is like sometimes people ask me about, you know, classical Sri Lankan dancing, which, you know, I've grown up in the States for the most part, so I haven't had much exposure to it. One time I went to Sri Lanka and got an opportunity to take classes there. That's one of the only places focused in classical what's called Candian dancing, but it's a traditional Sri Lankan dance, which they have been main people to still uphold it and keep it and almost form a codified technique around it. So just getting to dance in a different setting and learn a little bit about a different style of dance, but also find the similarities within ballet and those different styles of dancing has been really cool. And also like having that exchange of how do you promote interest, especially in the arts, especially in a culture that probably doesn't respect the arts as a professional pursuit was really interesting. 
It was a very different experience for me because a lot of it is very not just grounded, but you literally are like bending down to the ground and really using your upper thighs to like balance yourself as you're like, if you've taken ballet, it's like you're in a permanent grand plie the entire time. Like a lot of like that kind of muscle action. Whereas if you've taken classical ballet, it's a little bit more like, but it's a little bit more upright and fluid. And I think like having those deep movements closer to the ground and just a different use of muscles for me which I'm like oh that's hard (laughs) they just don't (laughs) exercise them all the time but you know I think they were also fascinated when I was doing other types of jumps and we kind of coached each other that way back and forth as like Mm -hmm. how can we approach this in a different way and this person who was running this class and has helped still kept this up has taken the time to form their own little technique around it and often use ballet technique in the way we structure our movement and how we build our own warm-up classes around that same kind of methodology, which is just really interesting. So this kind of flows into your next question is, you know, we've talked about your Sri Lankan heritage, and it sounds like you've been able to visit Sri Lanka in the past. What has been one of your best experiences there? It's really simple. It's just being able to see my family there. You know, over time, across the years, I've had family now slowly move to other countries, but my grandma's still there, and I have a couple of aunts and uncles and cousins who are still there, so it's, it gives me an opportunity to see them, get to interact with them, because we obviously don't get to see each other that often. Although, pandemic and Zoom helped a little bit now with that, and we got to interact a little bit more than we probably would have, actually. But, you know, just getting Is- to see family has been really nice. Like, do you speak the native language there or do they um, speak English? They all speak English. So that's easy. That's my parents' first language too. But they are two other languages, Sinhalese and Tamil, which are spoken there, which I don't really encounter in the home setting. It's usually when I go out. So I usually don't like go out alone, but usually you can get away with English in most places. All right. Well, your last question, you have a BS in biology from Stanford. So what interested you about biology? And was there a career in biology you thought you might want to go into? Oh, yeah. So when I originally went there, I was very interested in like sciences. You know, I thought about engineering for a bit, specifically environmental engineering, realized I did not like building things or the concept of that. So bioengineering and (laughs) moved on to biology. I think I've always been interested in animal wildlife, conservation, those kind of topics, you know, so that was really interesting to me. And it also tied in the environmental sciences in there as well. So I wanted to really approach biology from more of like that conservation, even that kind of zoology side of it. But I was in a place like Stanford, where you got to also take a bunch of biology classes with a bunch of pre-med people. And that was tough. So (laughs) it was this constant like back and forth of finding my passion versus just general interest. I still loved learning about it. Did not like that I had to work my butt off just to get a D sometimes in a class like (laughs) in classes that maybe didn't interest me as much as like the conservation sciences. And that was a useful experience for me because, you know, everyone around me at least appeared to be, you know, passionate about what they were studying or what their theses were. And for me, I realized like, no, my passion is still in dance and still in ballet. Mm -hmm. And I was keeping that up all that time. So I think around my junior or senior, I realized like, you know, if if there's a time to try and see if you can make this professional career work, now's the time to do it. And so after I graduated, 
one of my few offers was here at Louisville. And then I came here and, you know, I've made a career here for about 10 years in ballet that way. And, you know, it doesn't mean that the sciences and this interest in sciences doesn't creep up Mm -hmm. or my interest in conservation sciences doesn't creep up or environmental justice is just finding ways to advocate for that in different ways. Sometimes it like it works its way into pieces I choreograph. Sometimes it just means I have to like find activist groups around Louisville, which is also great. And there's plenty of places where find your voice and find organizations that are doing that kind of work. Didn't mean I have to study it, but like I have that background knowledge if it's ever useful. But I don't know if I'll ever return to it. But like I said, it's always interesting no matter what. Well, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you and learning about the Louisville LGBTQ plus book club. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And I have a few books to add to my ever-growing list as well. (laughs) You can find Sanjay on Instagram at thesanj, T-H-E-S-A-N-J, or his website at www.sanjaysavramuthu.com. You can learn more about the Louisville Pride Foundation and the book club at www.louisvillepride.com or on Insta at lupride.ky. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our show? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org. <laughs>